the last Sunday of 2023. What a joy to gather together and sing to him and look into his word. I know we have several of our people that are sick and several out traveling. We want to continue to pray for them. And I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And I'll do the scripture reading and remind us that we are in an ancient text, even though it's the New Testament. And on purpose, you're going to confront the law. There's a reason for that. And that will be included partly in the sermon this morning. So don't get lost in all the ancient uh, details that you don't seem to identify with. Understand that Luke chapter 1 and 2 are some of the only accounts that we have of Jesus as a young boy. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification, this would be Mary and Jesus, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That is, he is the Lord's in a different way than other second, third born males would be. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night And day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So you see, Jesus confronts Moses through the law, a man named Simeon, and a prophetess, a woman prophet named Anna. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. That would be about a three days journey north. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, one of the only stories we have of Jesus when he is 12 is recorded next. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning in a long caravan, they would travel together. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey of the three days. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Very long portion of scripture this morning. And a lot packed into it. Almost everything we know about the childhood of Christ comes from that section we just read together. And I've always wondered that if Jesus were born in my city or my town, would I have recognized him as the Savior of the world? If he grew up in my village or town, would I have identified him at at age 1 or 4 or 12 that that is the Messiah, the deliverer of the world? And we might assume that we would, but even down in Bethlehem with the travel and the booming economy of the census, you would probably also overlook the underwhelming. A young couple who needed to find alternate housing, probably not the only couple that needed to find alternate housing as people moved to their hometown to register. And in a modest culture, like some of the cultures our people have lived in, like the cultures in Africa that we lived in, you probably wouldn't even have known Mary was pregnant nor that Jesus was born. Unless, say, perhaps a star appeared or angels announced something to a shepherd. But we probably would not have recognized him. Here's three scenes this morning. The first scene begins in verse 21 when Jesus is eight days old. There's a law that his parents are going to obey, and it's a law about circumcision. The second scene begins in verse 22, the reference to the days of their purification. According to the Old Testament law, that would be 33 days of purification after Jesus is circumcised at, age, at, day, at day 8. So this is about a 40-day-old Jesus, a one-month-old boy. And the final scene, verses 41 to 52, show us Jesus at 12 years old. 
Very little else is recorded about Jesus' childhood. And probably the reason is because that's not why he came. He didn't come to example what a good boy at 12 years old should look like. Now you can capture some of that from the text, and a lot of commentaries go on and on and develop this, but that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to provide you a moral example. Yes, that's included in his perfect life. But what does the Bible say? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why the emphasis of Christ's life is from age 30 to 33. And that's why all four Gospels take the bulk of their material to record one week of Jesus' life. And it's his crucifixion and his death. But let's look at what God has given to us through Luke's account of this gospel. Let's look at him as a child. He meets three important people in the temple. Moses, through the law. Simeon, an older man. It doesn't say that he's a priest, but he appears at the temple. He seems to be this this outlier of an older man waiting for the consolation of Israel whom the Spirit has talked to and said you will not see death until you see the Messiah. And then you have Anna, a widow, someone who lost her husband soon after they were married and dedicated her life to worshiping God through prayer and fasting at the temple. So in this first section of this long text that we read, you're confronted with laws, the Mosaic law, the laws out of Leviticus, the laws out of Exodus, and you're confronted with people. And a lot of times, people identify well with people, but people shrink back from law. And so in God's wisdom, he is kind of mixing the two. The word law is used five times from verses 21 to 40. You can highlight those in verse 22. It says, according to the law of Moses, verse 23, as it is written in the law, verse 24, to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law. And some of you, primarily younger people, have heard your entire life that the law is bad. Anyone who interacts with the law is a legalist. But Christians are not against law. We just have a proper view of the law. And yes, Scripture can be used wrongfully. Scripture can be weaponized. Scripture can be used out of context to control people. And that happens still today in a lot of ministries that would even call themselves evangelical. But Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.8, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. As Christians, we're not bound to the Old Testament law anymore. Galatians 3.24-26, Paul says this, So then the law was our guardian, or the law was our tutor. It was our schoolmaster. It came alongside of us to lead us to something. It says this, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Of course, when Christ came, even as an eight-day-old, you see him fulfilling what? The law. In order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So no, we're not bound to these laws anymore. Jesus has now arrived, and he is connected to Moses and the law. It's interesting. Do you remember on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, three other disciples go up with Jesus to the top of the mountain, and two Old Testament characters appear. Do you remember who they are? Moses and Elijah. And Peter's like, wow, this is amazing. And he uses the language that basically makes them all the same. And, of course, you have Moses and Elijah, and one of the Gospel writers says they were talking to Jesus about his exodus, his departure. And all of a sudden, a cloud sweeps by, and only Jesus remains. And the picture that we're supposed to get is that this man, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the prophets, representative by Moses and Elijah. Jesus came to deliver people from the bondage of the law. That's why Galatians 4.4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son when every condition was exactly as it should be. And the Greek language was at its zenith, and Alexander the Great created incredible travel pathways throughout the world. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the what? Under the law. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus obeys God's law perfectly. Listen to what he says in John 8:46. He's speaking to people that are hurling insults at him, trying to trap him, and he says, "Which one of you convicts me of sin?" No other human on the world can say that. I can't say that. If you accuse me of sin, you would be right. And there would be an entire list that you know nothing about. Only Jesus can say, which one of you rightfully convicts me of sin? You know what stood out to me is Jesus was born to parents who kept the laws of Judaism, yet he never despised that feature of his childhood. He didn't say he had an abusive or legalistic home. He didn't say he missed out on the good life. It was within that context of law-keeping parents at that time that he did the will of the Father. Three separate ceremonies are recorded. The eight-day-old baby Jesus was circumcised. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he, he was an old preacher in Philadelphia Uh, just south from where I was born, he said, Jesus' circumcision was his first suffering for us. His coming as a human and enduring suffering and pain. Listen to what Colossians says. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. How? How are we then spiritually circumcised like the baby Jesus? It says this, having been buried with him in baptism. This is union with Christ, in which you were also raised with him. At eight days, Mary and Joseph obeyed God's word through the angel and gave him the name Jesus. 
which means Yahweh is salvation. And he came to give to us a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual identification, if you would, and fulfilled this. The 40-day-old Jesus, his mom had to go through the rites of purification. You can read about that in Leviticus 12. What is interesting also at that time in the temple is they had to redeem their firstborn child. They had to redeem their firstborn son. They paid five shekels of silver. You can find this in Numbers 18, verses 15 to 16. The redeemer of the world had to be redeemed with five shekels of silver. It says this in Numbers, their redemption price, at a month old, you shall redeem him. You shall fix it at five shekels in silver. There was another sacrifice they gave, and you remember that wealthier people would offer a lamb. But Joseph and Mary were in a different class, and they offered either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. That suggests they were too poor to bring a lamb. And what I find fascinating is that here they are, redeeming the Redeemer with five shekels of silver and giving two turtle doves for the Lamb of God. What you're supposed to start to recognize is Christ's humility. The poverty in which he was born and the value system that he came to turn right side up. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, you might become rich. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed. That's a price paid for release. Your release did not come at five shekels of silver. Your release did not come with two turtle doves. Your release didn't even come with a real lamb. As John said, your release came with what? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for you. There's another character. That was Moses, the confrontation with Moses, if you would, in the temple. But look at verse 25. This is where you are introduced to Simeon, a man in Jerusalem, and he is righteous and devout, and he's waiting for the comfort of his nation. And that simply means the, the messianic promise. And what Simeon does is he sees, and you don't really get a lot of detail about this, but he sees Joseph and Mary bringing their baby. And he launches off into, if you would, a praise song. This is actually the fifth and last Christmas song recorded in Luke chapters 1 and 2. There are five songs, Elizabeth, Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and now Simeon. And, and even though there are notes of praise, when he gets to the prediction like we read, some of the notes are not joyful. He will be the cause of many to stumble. And Mary, your own heart will be pierced with a sword. This is a worship song. 
He comes in the Spirit and he sings. I want to highlight, though, in his song, look at verse 26. He says that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And of course, the picture here, if you could gather it, he, he goes forward and he takes the baby in his arms. He is holding the Messiah. And he confesses that he has now seen God's salvation as a little baby in the temple. And he says, you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, verse 32, a light for revelation. And his parents marveled at what was said. But but Simeon captures, after he's holding the Messiah of the world, the light of the nations, he says that he would not see death and now he's ready to depart in peace. We had a memorial service here three weeks ago for Jane Unger. And I warned Art that I would mention this this morning. And it was a sweet service to remember the life of a dear saint. And three weeks later, even after the memorial service, death still stings. And it stings deepest for those who are close to the loved one. And as I told Art at what point in the sermon I would be talking about Simeon, he shared with me that he actually played the part of Simeon in a play one time, and they had a live baby there, but instead of holding it, because he was afraid the baby might squirm, he put his hands on it. But here you have Simeon holding baby Jesus, and he says he can now depart. The word depart is used in several ways in the Scripture. It can refer to the release of a prisoner, freedom, new life. We don't often think of death that way, do we? Or to untie a ship and set sail, a new journey, a new experience, a new world. Or to take down a tent, we're done, we're moving on. Or to unyoke an animal, a a beast of burden even needs rest. And it's when you, you take the weight off of that animal and you give it rest. Here is the picture for a Christian. Even as Jesus is a little baby and Simeon confronts death, death releases us from enslavement and the burdens of life. And you know the burdens of life are heavy. We woke up again this morning with the burdens of life. And it frees us to sail to a better land, a new journey with new opportunity to a new heaven and a new earth in the city where God dwells. Do you know where you find that hope? You find that in Jesus. Just like Simeon, by the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, prophesies and says, here is light and here is life. Now, verse 29, you are letting your servant depart in peace. But now the notes of his song change to a more somber, darker point. And there are three images he uses, and I want to move through these quickly. He uses a stone by saying a fall. He uses a sign that is opposed. And he mentions a sword. What does he mean by a stone? 
Well, Simeon clearly understood Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah chapter 8, and other portions of Isaiah. Let me read to you a portion out of Isaiah 8. He will become a sanctuary, that's safety, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he's talking about the Messiah. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And what Simeon is saying is this child will be a tripping stone. Many will stumble over him. Do you know Christ is a dividing line? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews. First Peter uh, chapter 2, he says, As you come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then he quotes, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion, I am laying in Jerusalem, a stone A cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So there are those who fall at this stone, and there are those who see this stone as precious, and they rise and will not be put to shame. What Simeon is saying is this baby's arrival is not good news for everyone. He also uses the word sign, a sign for opposition, a sign reveals divine truth. Miracles in John's gospel are called signs because they reveal truth about Jesus. The first sign that he did was in Cana at a wedding where he turned water to wine. And it was a sign that Jesus has the power to miraculously transform not just water, but the hearts of people. And then he uses an image that is for Mary alone, and it's a sad image, and it's that of a sword. And that refers to the sufferings and sorrows she would experience as the mother of Messiah. And one day she would stand at the foot of the cross and see her own son executed. The initial fulfillment of that sword, by the way, is when Jesus was 12. And they're a day away from Jerusalem, and she realizes in a panic that their son is nowhere to be found. All of a sudden, that sword is gently pressing into her heart. Do you know that even though Mary suffered, her suffering is not redemptive? Because 1 Timothy 2 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Let's look at the third person. Anna. Anna, if you would, uh, if, if you're getting distracted, Anna was a woman preacher. Okay? So here you have in the New Testament, Anna in the temple praying, fasting, and proclaiming the word to all who were waiting. In that day, widows were often overlooked, but she is providentially there when Simeon is praising God for the baby Jesus. Other prophetesses, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Isaiah's wife, the evangelist Philip, had four daughters who were all called prophetesses. Again, what Luke does is beautiful. He's highlighting the role of women 
in ministry and celebrating the birth of Messiah and not just celebrating it, but proclaiming it to other people. Now, in closing this morning, I just want to look at the snapshot of Jesus as a youth. Look at verse 39. Having fully obeyed the law, Mary and Joseph returned to Nazareth, which would be his home place until the official start of his ministry. It says this in verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And we have one story of that childhood. We know that he was a carpenter. Mark 6.3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James? It's interesting that it does not mention Joseph in that part of the narrative, and some have wondered if Joseph had already died. But it's not this The carpenter, we know he didn't perform miracles as a boy, as some television episodes want us to believe, like all these amazing events that everybody knew this was Jesus because, you know, they were out playing and he turned, you know, sand into water. Because John says that the turning of the water to wine in Cana was the first of his signs. So there was nothing noteworthy about the child Jesus until you get to the point where he stays at the temple. And after three days, they found him. Three days as a parent. It's interesting what Mary says. Everyone else is amazed at his questions. Everyone else is amazed at his answers. His mother seems amazed that he's been in the temple for three days, and she had no idea and you can hear it in her voice. Look at, first, look at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. It's a Greek word that means torment or major anxiety attack. No, it actually means torment, torment, duress. And Mary's loving rebuke was met with a very searching reply. Look at verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Jesus was affirming his divine sonship and mission. I must be here. I must preach to other villages. I must go to Jerusalem and be betrayed. I must suffer and die. And I must be lifted up. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and interesting, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And here's the second growth statement, and we're done. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Warren Wearsby said this, The boy Jesus grew up in a large family in a despised city, nurtured by parents who were probably poor, The Jewish religion was at an all-time low. The Roman government was in control and society was in a state of fear and change. Yet when Jesus emerged from Nazareth, 18 years later, the Father was able to say of him in Luke 3.22, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Beautiful snapshot of what a child who fears and loves God can be. Takeaways as we enter 2024, if you'll give me five minutes. 
As we serve God in South Denver, Lord willing, later this evening, this passage challenges our relationship to death, how we view it, how we fear it. Salvation and a right relationship with Jesus should adjust our view of death because as this baby is presented in the temple, we are reminded what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2:14 to 15. He says, "Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the children are human. Christ Himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook of humanity. Why? That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death." We're subject to lifelong slavery. Remember one of the words for depart? Is you are freed from prison. That's what this child came to do. In a hymn that we often sing during memorial services, it's called, It Is Not Death to Die. Let me just read to you the first verse in a chorus. It is not death to die to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears, and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will find in your mercy that it is not death to die. That's one of the takeaways from what we see in Luke chapter 2. Another one is our relation to poverty. Most of us are the rich of the world, and the more you travel throughout the world, you realize this to be true. You know what we learn about poverty from Luke chapter 2? Poverty is not a sin, because Jesus was poor. Joseph and Mary were poor. Poverty is not, therefore, then, God's disapproval on someone. And poverty does not prevent a person from worshiping God, though it does present unique challenges. You see poor people in Luke chapter 2 worshiping God. Poverty does not excuse unrighteousness. Joseph and Mary were righteous in all that they did. And therefore, poverty is not shameful in and of itself. And, and the takeaway from that is this. If we despise the poor or overlook the poor, we show that we would have likely despised and overlooked the boy Jesus himself. He wasn't in kingly Jerusalem, and he wasn't on a throne. He was in Bethlehem in a feeding trough. And that should affect 2024 and our view of others from a church standpoint to the world. And then finally, of course, our relationship to Jesus Simeon holds the baby and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. The gospel is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the good news. And good news is not found in a religious structure, the temple, or in a geographical location, Jerusalem, or an organized religion, priests, synagogue, Pharisees, or a pastor. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. Do you know him as your Savior? Have you bowed the knee to him as your king? Because if so, he is not a rock of stumbling or offense. 
and he is a rock of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you 